1: Hello everybody, welcome along. It's another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. I'm James taking you through, and this is another Famous Fans version. The guest on today's Cricket Badger Podcast is Inspiral Carpets guitarist Graham Lambert, a big Lancashire fan as well. As I've found so far, we're doing the Famous Fans one on both of them so far. We had Neil Folds on a few weeks ago. The guest wants to talk about cricket, I want to talk about what they do, and I think uh, we found a good balance, Graham and myself, as we went through this two-parter. The idea behind the Famous Fans Ones is to... Well, it gives me a chance to talk about something completely different than cricket. Although I am a cricket badger, cricket is my first love. You are also probably describe me as a music badger as well. I've been into music of all kinds from a very early age indeed. And that Manchester scene was hugely important to me. The fantastic bands came out of Manchester through the 80s, 90s. and still doing it, really. But New Order, Joy Division, The Smiths, Happy Mondays, The Fall. And, of course, the Inspiral Carpets, who I listen to... An awful lot as well. So on this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast, we chat all things music, all things Inspiral Carpets. And we chat Graham's love for Lancashire County Cricket Club and cricket in general. And we go through, start to finish really, the Inspiral Carpets and what they achieved and what they gave to music and that Manchester scene. I could have talked to Graham for probably weeks on end because cricket and music, great cocktail. And hopefully you'll enjoy this podcast just as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you, as always, to tvsportsblog.com for their support of the Cricket Budget Podcast. Give them a follow on Twitter, at tvsportsblog. And also a hello and a welcome and a mention to the Brit Hop Brewing Company. They're producing quality ales combined with their passion for 90s Brit Hop indie music, established in 2017. Give them a look on their website, brithopbeer.com. Some good beer and got some good merchandise on there. But let's get into this chat with Graham Lambert of the Inspiral Carpets. Really did enjoy this one. And just before we get into the chat about cricket and music, here's a little bit of a reminder. A career in a hundred seconds. It seems a little bit insulting almost because there's far more to the inspiral carpets than this. But here's a little bit of a reminder of what they brought to the table and to that Manchester scene. I put out one with Neil Folds which was the first one a couple of weeks ago maybe and I stick it around social media and then I got quite a few people saying well did you know that the butler out of Downton Abbey's a cricket fan and uh, I've seen that fella out of Inspiral Carpets at Old Trafford quite a few few times and all this kind of stuff so it starts to take shape doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I used to um, I first went uh, well 55 I first went in 76 when I went to I've been to and an game, like v Hampshire, and then as a kid just went as often as I could for about four or five seasons, and then as I've got grown into an adult, I'll just go as many times as I can, which ends up these days being about five times a season. But my favourite form of the game was just sitting there for a four-day game, you know, just shirt off, you know, in a pair of shorts, feet yeah. over the seat in front, and just talking to narrow water seemed like blokes my age, who when I was a kid seemed like white-haired blokes with flabby brown skin, just sat there uh, soaking up the sun, reading the paper, watching cricket. I have turned into one of them, although I don't <laughs> sit there reading the paper. Yeah. Uh, I still score. I just haven't, I can't drop the habit of, if I don't watch your cricket for the day, I have to score it. It's just a, it's an addiction I've got. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: I, I used to do yeah. that when I was a kid. When I when I first went on to cricket, I used to sit there and score it. But it's some, that's, a, that's a habit I kicked.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like, I guess it's like a, drinking you know, a drugs addiction where um, if I know I'm going to be there for the full day a scorebook well, it's not so much a scorebook I, I rule out like a, a page or a couple of pages went before I set off in the morning obviously my wife takes the piss out of me royally <laughs> I've got folders and folders of these what are out like foolscap sort of four ruled out sheets with the uh, scores because you, you know um the guys that do uh tailenders uh they yeah. were doing um something about scoring so it, I mean, I don't listen to tail because for some reason it just, just do not like, work for me somehow. And I don't know why. And then I'd put on all Felix through music. And then I, I saw him tweet one day about scoring. So I sent him a private message of a video <laughs> of like, what were about half of the score sheets. I couldn't believe how many I had uh, just fanning through. And one of them was when I was off in London one day with nothing to do. I went to Middlesex, second 11 versus somebody else, can't remember. And Scored it, like, and obviously I didn't know who the players were, because it was like 2nd 11, so I was scurrying on through the internet and asking people, like the odd person, like the groundsman and whatever, I do you know, this is bastard, <laughs> and then uh, pieced together like a full-base <laughs> player scoring middle-sex feet, I can't remember it was, not had been glossed 2nd 11, one of the outgrounds at like, uh, Southgate I think it's called it, yeah. but yeah, I just uh, love, I love just sitting there watching, particularly the Red Bowl game, I just love it.
1: The thing about scoring in the game is you, you can't take your eye off it, can you? Because if you if you walk away for twenty minutes, and have a chat with somebody, you you miss three or four overs and your scoring's gone to pot.
0: Yeah, it's true. Um, the secret of that is, uh, you learn to like not so much multitask, but double tasking to have a conversation while you're doing it. But in the four-day game, you you could like nip to the toilet and you know you miss like one over or something. You can sort of soon piece it together. Reflecting to cricket because it's on the internet, it's dead easy to piece together, but. You know, I wouldn't rule. You know, I wouldn't have it that all my score sheets are absolutely spot on, perfect. But in a way, that's you know, with the odd tea stain on it here and the you know, the score sheets, it's it's part and parcel of the story, really. You know, you, you, nobody will pull me up on getting a score sheet wrong in 2001 county championship games in and Durham, but. Um, I can't find a no-ball somewhere that someone pulls, you know. No one's ever going to pull me up about it, you know. But I do my best to make it as accurate as possible.
1: But you're a potential safety net for Lancashire County Cricket Club. If their scorer suddenly turns ill, they can turn to you.
0: Yeah, I, have a, I, I do it what like the kid old-fashioned way, you know, when you used to have those green cumulative scoring books where I don't really do balls first. and how many balls a ball a ball that's a, That's just a general like run-of-the-mill pretty standard-like club club scoring style, or as well as pen and paper job, you know. <laughs> we've, we've got
1: into the chat already, haven't we? So we might as well introduce <laughs> you to the uh, Cricket Badger podcast listeners. Graeme Lambert, welcome to the podcast. Inspiral Carpets lead guitarist. How are you? How are you finding life at the moment?
0: That's me, yes. Um, I'm glad. Thanks for having me on. Uh, life is very good, as it, as it has been for, for the, the first 55 years of my life. It's, uh, it's all fine. Making do with lockdown. Massively missing cricket, though, like live cricket. I have a quite a big library of old games on video and DVD, and, which I can watch, and obviously you've got YouTube now and your TV and stuff. But uh, this is the live sound of
1: uh on Willow, well, you're, you're just a little bit older than me, but because of that, your Inspiral Carpets band, that, that kind of Manchester sound, that era of kind of indie music and and the Smiths and Stone Roses, Happy Mondays and what have you, means a hell of a lot to me, to be honest. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big m- music fan. If you start to give me a test on Inspiral Carpets record by record, I'd probably fail it badly. But I know, I, I, since I chatted to you the other day on, online wow. about getting you on the podcast, I've been listening yeah. to uh, some of your old tracks, and it's been bringing back some many happy memories. Do you, do you look back at your back catalogue with fondness? And um, you, you know, if it was Desert Island Discs, so would you take any of your own tracks to it? <laughs> uh, that's
0: a good question. I think the, what lockdown has made a lot of musicians do is analyse their own material, their own back catalogue, because there isn't a lot of people making. Well, the, certainly the older bands making new music these days. Um, I'm not really a big fan of, of listening back to what we've done because by the time you make a record. You you've lived with that song or those songs. And you're making an album. You've lived with them for, for weeks and months on end, and you know them inside out. So by the time you've committed or they're, they're committed to vinyl, you've, you you obviously have a listening you really prior to it, or else you wouldn't put it out. But you we don't really. I'm sure I'll speak for all my band and all the most bands, You don't really sit around listening to your own music. So the answer to your question is I probably wouldn't take anything. By us to of uh, a Desert Island disc, but I could certainly recommend some of them if anybody was planning that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, one of my favourite current bands is the Cortinas and I, was, uh, I, I like listening to their their early um, album, I think is a, I think their first album is an absolute cracker, uh, and they're a good example to me of a band that, their the early stuff's quite raw, and I like that, and then as they get a little bit more money and get a little bit more popular, it starts to get a little bit more polished, and I lose a little bit of interest to, to be honest. I, I like the the raw sound of something that's, uh, it doesn't mean it's a bad record, but I like to hear it from the heart rather than from the producer. Do you, do you get what I'm saying?
0: Uh, absolutely, yeah. I think it, in the early days, um, you first, well, in, in our case, and I'm sure it's most of the case, you don't have much money, you do a, a cheap, your first few singles are recorded cheaply, uh, maybe done by mates, and, and you're really passionate about what you do. And then, rightly or wrongly, you sort of become a little bit successful, and I'll determine successful as making a living out of making music. But the goalposts changed somewhat, because there's always the lure of kind of getting to get into the charts and making better selling records than your previous record, and yeah, definitely uh, a little bit of the magic or the, the, the spark in a way. Uh, a lot of bands tend to lose that by the time to get to albums three and four, and it's quite difficult to to keep that spark going because you change as people, you grow up, you get older. In, in our case, uh, you know, you start having children, you get married, and and then everything all the pleasures and pain um, that that brings. You know, yeah, you do lose a bit of that sparkle from being, you know, hungry five hungry lads on the a, a start of a rollercoaster adventure. <laughs> Cricket Badget Podcast is brought to you in
1: association with tvsportsblog.com. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog.com. Take you back to 1983. You and a school friend, Stephen Holt, set up the band. You'd been gigging around Manchester. i think, thinking a few years before that, trying to find your way in the music business. Did you <laughs> when you when you met Stephen? Obviously, Stephen wasn't part of the band when you when you got the record deal. Yes. Yeah. Did you suddenly find, think, wow, something special's coming here? And you started to get the band together. And you thought, we've we've got the chemistry right. Uh,
0: your sort of ambitions I'll I couldn't speak for myself, but and probably Stephen as well. You start. Just the two of you sat on the edge of the bed writing songs and then you, you find a bass player and then you find a drummer and then Clint joined on the keyboard. Um, and you want to do a gig in Oldham in a pub, then you want to do a gig in Oldham in a pub and fill it. So each time you you kind of go for the changing, but there are definitely one changing point is making a record. And, and I say in those days, I think like the grandparents were, you make a record and um it just... Get you apart, and you know, and you're trying to you make a record, and then you want to get in the charts with your next record. But I, I do remember John Peel playing this for the first time, which was in 1988 with our first single, and it definitely felt like this is potentially more than a hobby. So, you it's then when you start thinking we could get really big. And my always, you know, flagging the ground was always you two, yeah. not being a fan of you two, but just thinking that. You know, they're, they're the biggest band, sort of, of my generation. I, I mean, I used to really like them in the early days, but by album number three, I'd, I'd gone off them and they kind of become everything that we didn't want to be apart from we just wanted to be as successful as them. And now obviously that didn't happen. But I always use them as a, as a guide stick where there, there's no rule saying, you know, you, you use the Carpenters as an example, there's no rule saying you can't get this big, as big as the Beatles were or as big as you two are. And for something like the Cortina, it's a really good example of that they're massive without any help from, from media or from radio, never get interviewed press, really depressive, very rarely get interviewed on the radio. they're just a, a massive phenomenon. Not everyone's good to see, you know, but I really like them. I've got a real thing for them, because they, they, just, they just people identify with them, and that's, that's really what the ultimate aim, really, what the band is is making music and writing songs that people uh, can identify with.
1: When you start and you first pick up a guitar and you start thinking, right, I want to form a band, is the motivation to be as big as a Beatles and be a millionaire or is the motivation to make music or is it a combination of both?
0: Uh, but again, not couldn't speak for me. You, can, you learn two chords and then you want to play a third chord and then you want to be able to write a song and then you want to be able to write songs that sounds like a band that you like. Money's never really... A drive. You, you, I, well, speaking again solely for myself, never really thought. Oh, if I learn ten chords, I could be, potentially be a millionaire. I just, just want to progress each time. You know, like I said, get you want to get played on the radio. Then you want to be successful because you've been played on the radio. And then you want to do bigger gigs. Every time you do gigs, you want the tours to be bigger. So yeah, there's no there's no set sort of template that you want to follow. Really, I, I guess people like Aitken and Waterman back in the eighties they had templates about how artists were going to be and what line they were going to follow but for a live sort of band as such you can't really you can't really do that because you you just make music and hope that people get into it you know
1: there is a danger with this podcast that I'm going to talk about music all the way through because I, I really like it. But the we have to remember it's the Cricket budget podcast. But I'm, one last question on the music before we go back to cricket a little bit. You, you almost kind of self-funded yourselves, didn't you? The merchandise and the T-shirts and things that you you had around the band were very important to you in the early stages, weren't they?
0: Yeah, they, they funded us in, in 1989. A couple of us had like full-time jobs and left our jobs to do the band full-time and we we lived off selling T shirts and for the money you get for gigs like supporting James or the Stone Roses, you know, which is fifty quid here, a hundred quid there. So obviously nowhere near enough for five people and crew to live off. So yeah, so we we, we created a brand with the T shirts that we sold quite a few and we lived off those proceedings but we we ran at a loss for, for, for twelve months and then we like I said John Peel picked up on us and started playing us and then we trying to mute records eventually after about four or five indie singles and then obviously once we started to mute records we were on wages then which lasted five years. So yeah those those early days, particularly nineteen eighty nine, when we went full time but without a set income, you know, we were it was it really was life on on the edge, financially on the edge.
1: <laughs> and you had an old Gallagher as a roadie, didn't you, at one stage?
0: Uh yeah, an old roadie for, for um, what did it be about maybe three years, something like that, I think. Someone pointed the other day, it was the anniversary of when We met at a gig in Manchester and then he became our roadie and then for three or four years he had run his course in being our roadie and then he went off and joined Oasis, I think we called it The Rain at the time, and then changed the name to Oasis. And then, yeah, the rest is, it's it's an history somewhere
1: what happened to them. (laughs) Was it obvious with Noel Gallagher that he was a a musician that was going to become a star or was he just a, a normal roadie at the time?
0: He wasn't a normal roadie. He he was less than a normal roadie. It was obviously <laughs> he wasn't going to earn a living as a roadie working for other people other than us. He was kind of like the mysterious sixth member of the band where he roaded for us all. He even set Tom's microphone up sometimes when he got sold that he had to. Uh, but he what is, he went into, his heart wasn't into being a roadie. He he became a very good guitarist um, while he was working for us. As he set all our gear up, he'd be forever... Playing all the instruments, and in particularly the guitar, but he, he his heart wasn't in being a roadie working for someone. And like I say, his time was at a its course in '92. He was fed up of us, and we were a bit fed up of him moping around. And then, he, like I say, he went off, and then he went to be successful, which is brilliant. You know, I'm I'm nothing but you know proud in the fact that you know he used, used to be really good friends with him, and he's like a really successful uh, artist. It's, it's brilliant, you know.
1: Fed up of collecting your team's matchday subs? Worried about carrying cash post-COVID-19? Try SlateApp.co.uk Less contact than contactless. Slate, the smartest way to collect weekly match fees and more. Download the app, SlateApp.co.uk Not just for cricket, any clubs that collect subs. It just makes sense. Stick it on the Slate. SlateApp.co.uk Let's take you back to the cricket and going back to the 70s, as you said. Can you can you remember that first day when you walked into a cricket ground? What was it about cricket that made you think, wow, this is great? And obviously all these years later, still in love with it.
0: I do remember it. Um, I won't bore you with the exact date, but it was uh, April 1976. For some reason, uh, my friend Anthony Feely, who was a year older than me, and he, he'd been to cricket already, he said, right, we'll, we'll get season tickets and we'll, we'll go and watch like, every game this season, so I bought a season ticket which was about two pounds in was on the my parents, bought me a season ticket, so without any previous experience of being a staff at Old Trafford all day, which was two bus rides away from where we lived, we went down, we paid a, got the uh, membership card in advance, and we went down and uh, yeah, it was a Benson Edges game, Lancashire be Hampshire, Old Trafford uh, and Barry Richards was playing for Hampshire who's was an absolute legend South African opening batsman, and I just remember seeing him in real life, I'd seen him on TV and my dad was, told me how good he was. And even though we got beat that day, we actually came home early because Anthony Feely, I was, we had to go to some do or something. So we left at tea time. But I'd seen Barry Richards back and he he was really good. And I was hooked, you know, from the, the first day I went. And um, he, Anthony Feely, my friend who I'm still friends with now, he taught me how to score in a scorebook. And because this day I still do a bit of cricket scoring, it is my um, guilty pleasure, I think people call it.
1: Were you a kid that ran around with your autograph book and were you know, collecting your autographs and that way inclined, um, or did you just watch from the stands?
0: It, yeah, I I've got a few autographs. We, we used to wait for it, but they took that long coming out after they groomed themselves in the 70s, like just <laughs> quaffing their hair and um, chatting to uh, young women who were always in the queue behind us, but the players made beelines for them. I remember Anthony Felix saying, like, used to have an opening back told uh Andrew Kennedy in the 70s, and I remember he came out and he completely. Bypassed me and Anthony went talking to these two girls, and, and Anthony Steele he, he said to me, he "said oh, look at Andrew Kennedy going straight for the women," and Andrew Kennedy heard him, and he goes, uh, "What did you say that And he <laughs> said, "Oh, uh, <it's> no, nothing." <laughs> <laughs> he it was quite funny seeing me mate having a stand-off with, uh, with one of the likes cricketers, it's quite funny I imagine watch?
1: when you're a lead guitarist of a, a successful band you, you don't get any women queuing up for you at the at the stage, do you?
0: The principle works the same doesn't it, I mean you, you're more <laughs> like a, one of of, like a, a young fan who looks excited to meet you than some sort of nerdy bloke stuck there with, with an armful of scorecards or in, in our case record sleeves that weren't signing, but you you. you you know you should treat people mm-hmm. equally really and but uh, <laughs> yeah that's what i try to do now anyway i mean lead
1: guitarist is the glamour role isn't it you lead singer or lead guitarist your front front and centre aren't you the drummer and the bass guitarist maybe not quite Yeah, you know, if you think about a band like Coldplay you could be the the drummer of Coldplay walking walk into Tesco's and nobody would care less but Chris Martin walks in and he'd probably get swamped by people if you, if you if you take that to cricket you mentioned Barry Richards he's kind of the lead guitarist in terms of a cricket team isn't he who, who was the lead guitarist in terms of your cricket watching who was the the guys that really whetted your appetite and thought wow he's he's, he's special
0: not many people actually call me a lead guitarist I'm more of a rhythm guitarist because of the way I would our band set up, Clint there's a lot of the, uh, Clint Boone a lot of the lead, what you might call soloing stuff, so a lot of the uh, time on our records, I'm I'm in with the rhythm with the and and Clint's drums, on the so keyboards,
1: isn't he, which is a big big part of your sound, isn't
0: it? It, it is, yeah. Um, I find it a bit flattering by you calling me a lead guitarist, because I, I would never call myself a lead guitarist, more well, you, a rhythm guitarist.
1: You, you're a guest uh, on the podcast, I'm not going to not flatter you, am I? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, I'm 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 more of um in football in terms, more of a holding midfield player or uh or is he like um kind of like a, a number five batsman who can just like a sort of Paul Collingwood kind of an man. don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing Paul Collingwood in slightest, but you know, he's once somebody went out and smacked a load of sixes like Peterson did, but Collie Collie's good for decent fielder, good for holding one end up. Uh obviously no fool with the bat whatsoever and could bowl a good six over spell of Dibbly is to uh, just partnership breaking, you know. So I view myself more of one of those types of musicians rather than, um, you know, an Eric Cantona or a Peterson type player. That's that's more Clint Boone's role, really. All right, okay. Um, let's
1: let's rephrase the question then. Who's your Clint Boone in terms of cricket?
0: Well, I mean, you know, from, in length terms, you know, we've had Clive Lloyd, you know, Wasim Macram. We've had some big players like that. But for myself, my the uh, my favourite player players I've always uh, used to love watching Graham Fowler. That. Who um, obviously made it as an England player by hook or by crook. I think probably because, and I'm sure Graham would say himself, that because of Graham Gooch, because of the had for going playing in South Africa in the sort of early 80s, Graham got a spot in the England team. And I was so proud of him because I just used to love watching him back for Lancashire because he, he just went out there and just seemed to like, you know, have a lot of luck, but really. Got the uh, attacking left-handed opening batsman. I, I got a lot of time for Graham, and, and I'm, I ended up getting to know him through the band. And uh, he's a good friend of mine, and uh, really, really top bloke, really out and out, hundred percent solid Lancashire bloke, Graham. We've got a lot of time for him.
1: Previous guest on the podcast, Graham Fowler. He's, uh, he made that double hundred, didn't he, in India, which I thought was a terrific innings. And I I remember listening on. TMS to him, ticking along towards the two hundred. And when you when you're a supporter of a county, and then one of your lads does well and goes off and plays for England and scores a century or takes a five for it, it's special, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it, it's funny because it it seems to differ from football in that respect. Cricket, where when Rooney was playing for England, a lot of United fans didn't want him to play for England, didn't want him to get injured. Whereas with cricket, you you just you know our our guys, you know, we've had a few guys over the years get picked for England, or we had a lot of international players coming over and. Obviously, they represent their country. And, and you're just nothing but proud of them, you know. So, and, yeah, you know, Fowler in the 80s had gone missing for a, several county games and Thunder League games because he was playing for England versus the West Indies in 84, for example, and getting absolutely hammered by the West Indies' pace attack. But we're still dead proud of him that, you know, he got 100 at Lord's against the West Indies and, you know, missed, obviously missed several English games that summer, but just super proud of him that, you know, one of our... One of I was playing for England and old and he end up, you know, he's there's that really strong bit of pride and, and going back to when he Graham got double hundred in India in I think it was early eighty five, I think remember my mum used to always have radio four on in the mornings listening to the news and before I uh, would as I come down for breakfast and before I went to work. But I'd been listening like through the night and as I said, Mum, we've got to put T M S on because Gary Powell was near near two hundred and uh, you know, me and my mum were tuning listening and you know, in those days the the reception on the radio was really like dodgy you know because it was a long wave or something and yeah I, I was there with him when he edged over the line to get 200 so, so you know one of my proudest sporting moments when moment Square Farrell got a double under in India
1: that, That's something I think all cricket fans share is that youth um, where you take your radio to bed people of a certain age anyway Take the radio to bed yeah. and you're listening to the England Down Under or wherever and you're listening to the Crackles and you're trying to piece together what's going on. You may be dozing off every now and again, but you, you're trying to keep pace with what's happening on the other side of the world. That, that's actually some, yeah, it's a very simple thing, but it's actually very special, isn't it, when, when you think back to your early times in cricket?
0: Yeah, it, it probably unites all cricket fans it? from it, certainly in this country and I'm sure around the world, you know, where you, you, you're listening and watching. Um, I know when we, we toured Australia with the band in 93 and it that coincided with Australia being here in England because it was June 93. So I remember staying up all night in Australia watching the Test match. I think it was England v Australia at Trent Bridge, I think, when Australia batted on the first day all day <laughs> without losing a wicket. And I was watching it live I'm in my, 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 Australia. Yeah. yeah.
1: My dad, uh, he, he likes a bit of cricket, but he didn't get too many games. And he, he got a ticket for Trent Bridge Test match when I think Australia batted all day. got about, about 300 for no loss at the end of the day's play. And that's the only day's cricket you saw that summer. He came home <laughs> a bit displeased, I
2: think.
0: Yeah, not seeing any wickets fall. It's, yeah. it's quite bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I, mean, I think it when they did lose a wicket, that is, I, think the first go down, I think it was a run-out, I think. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was a run-out the following morning. But anyway...
1: Lancashire is a, a very famous county. I'm, I'm a Yorkshire fan, so there is a little bit of rivalry between us, Graham. Yeah, the Test match ground, proud history, plenty of county championships in the in uh, in the in the trophy cabinet. Do you get that sense when you're watching them play? Um, I mean, obviously, growing up watching it in the 70s to watching it now, what's the, what's the differences in your in your mind?
0: Yeah, there's a massive rivalry. Isn't there? I mean, obviously, any players that walk out there to represent Lancashire, they're obviously going to try the damnedest. But when Lanks play Yorkshire... I'm sure both sides, but I know the Lancashire side, you know, they they step up a notch. I don't know why. And I think it's probably fueled by the fans because since the invention of 2020, the crowds for the Roses T20 games have, have been absolutely amazing. And I can vaguely remember in the 70s when Old Trafford would be almost full for John Player League games and, and big one-day games like B&H and Gillette Cup on that way, big games. You know, there'd be a lot of people on the ground. But to see the grounds full for a, a county game it's a great feeling. I'm not a massive fan of twenty twenty more of a cricket purist, but I've still got to the twenty twenty games, you know, I'm not kind of uh, a red ball snob. They're still um, fun, aren't they? They're still fun. Yeah, and mean, still at the end of the day, it's still cricket, isn't it? You know, but it's it's just over and done within like four hours or whatever, you know. But it's just great to see a lot of fans coming over from Yorkshire and having the crack, you know, and everyone gets bearded up and it's it's it, you know, it's good and it we, we've got three daughters, we quite often We'll go to a Rosie's 2020 game at Old Trafford and take t- the full family, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll see the white ball flying about into the stands and stuff, you know, and I'll be getting all worked up and like, tens about saying, oh, we need to bowl a couple of drop balls in, you know, the yeah. adults will be going, oh, I want to see the ball flying into the crowd, you know. You know, it's, it's a great feeling and it, and it has brought the younger people into the game and, you know, maybe a lot of females as well have got more interested in cricket cause of 2020, you know.
1: It's a cracking atmosphere, those Roses games, isn't it? And, that, you know, the T20 Blast is, is, a, is a thriving tournament. It's, it makes it so disappointing, doesn't it, that in, in the year 2020, we've had a, a fantastic start to the summer weather-wise and we've seen nothing at all.
0: Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Um, it it's genuine <laughs> cricket lovers, uh, I'm sure everyone's thinking, right, when's the first game? And there's some thought that it might be the first of August this year. And... Um, I'm thinking, as I was sat in the garden the other day reading that, i thinking, I know what's going to happen in August. It's going to be the wettest August we've ever had. Oh, it's just bound that's to just, be, isn't it? It's bound to be. That's just, just cricket, though, isn't it? As, yeah. as cricket fans, we just we just know that, don't we? But you know, I'll be there, though, and hopefully the first 10th championship game, if we're allowed, I'll be at Old Trafford for the first four-day game. But yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? It's a shame. But I have to think how, it, how it's all going to work. I mean, even the fact that they play football um, later this month is... Quite amazing, really, because obviously behind closed doors, but the players on the pitch are going to be, you know, there's going to be 22 players within, well, within two metres of each other, aren't they? Unless they're just going to play the passing game like I, the Italians play.
1: Yeah, I find it bizarre. I've been watching some of the stuff from Germany and you see the substitutes are all spread out because they don't want to be two metres together. But then when they, as soon as they're brought on the pitch, they're tackling in, in each other's the spaces. It doesn't make much sense to me, um, really. But, yeah. I mean, it's likely that cricket's going to come back behind closed doors and, I've, I've been watching kind of the world change over the last few months and, and music's been quite central to that, hasn't it? A lot of the artists have been doing gigs from home and doing live Facebook chats with their fans and stuff. And I've heard a number of bands saying, this is actually a really good thing. Yeah, Once once we get back to whatever this new normal brings, we're going to carry on doing this because it's actually a really good way of connecting with the people that support us.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, people obviously connect through music, don't they, as, as they do with sports as well. We've done, the band have done a couple of Twitter listening parties where we've we had a fellow go through all our um, studio albums at nine o'clock on a, on a Thursday night, so it became like, we called it, hashtag Inspiral Thursday, and all the band would be on, and we'd be talking, we'd be playing our album, and then we'd talk about each track and what the lyrics meant, and uh, bring back memories, and the response has been absolutely amazing. You know, the tag like, Inspiral Thursday was trending, well, it trended every Thursday night, every time we did it. Um, and it was really good bringing people together, and we had, we had a catchphrase, like even... Together a load or something like that, you know, where um, everyone was listening into the same album, and the same songs, and we were talking about the tracks and what certain things meant about the tracks and certain how certain instruments were recorded, and you know, it, it really created a lot of interest. You know, it's, it's a good way of having a community and keeping people together.
1: I think the first time I ever heard of your your band was the, the the big single at the start, wasn't it? This is how it feels to be lonely. And uh, I was watching yeah. the video yesterday. after I knew you were coming on the podcast. I watched that video. And I, I'm I'm imagining that's on the top of Saddleworth Moor and you look, all look absolutely freezing.
0: It was freezing, yeah. It was it was on the Snake Path, the A57, actually, right. not Saddleworth okay. Moor. Yeah, right on the top of the Snake Path. We meant to have a big screen put up that day um, showing subliminal cuts of our faces, but it was that windy that... Uh, we had to abandon having this screen, so we had to fabricate one in the end. Um, but, yeah, it was freezing that day. It got soaked, But, you know, it was all good fun. You remember these things afterwards, thinking that, that was a good laugh, wasn't it, when we sat on the, uh, 57 for 12 hours in the middle of, it was one January, was well, January 1990, it would have been uh, absolutely freezing, you know. But uh, it's, all, it's all for our art, you know. We, we, got, we did it for the art.
1: <laughs> At that time, music videos were very important, weren't they? Every band that uh, brought out a single had to do the obligatory music video, and people getting really creative with stuff at the time.
0: Yeah, I think music videos it, it became well, they first got made probably roughly in the 70s, didn't they? The late 70s music videos. but Was it, was it Peter Gabriel's
1: Sledgehammer and all that kind of stuff that really kicked off? Was it mid 80s, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah,
0: uh, yeah that was mid 80s. Yeah, you'd always have videos that were groundbreaking, like Peter Gabriel, Godly and Cream, 10 C. there, well, Godly and Cream as well. They always made really interesting videos. They probably are, probably film students. Um, but yeah, they, they, you know, you, you do a single, you have to do B-side, then you have to decide on the sleeve and then the video, where you are got to make the video. And then, and then by the time you come to making the video, there'll be all sorts of people joining in saying, well, oh, when you do the video, can you make sure the singer's um, singing, you know, on, on the screen, singing every time the singer sings, sings a line, and if there's any backing vocals of the person in the backing vocals make sure Mary's shot, so you, you know, you, it becomes more of a thing where, like, more of a team effort with the people around you, as well as just whatever the band wants, you know. Because if it was left just to the band, you know, they'd just be like really obscure, arty bits of a film that didn't mean anything to the run of the mill, fan in the street kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, so it was. I mean, that video probably cost thousands of pounds. I know a, a company came up from London to do the video, I think it was Anton Corbin actually. Or, or, Somebody had something to do with Anton Corbyn because he came through. Because we're on mute records and he'd done a lot of Depeche Mode stuff, we were also on mute, but all that stuff was new. There was a van that brought some catering on to the moors, you know, so we had some food over there, you know, and it was all, it was all new to us because we just we'd never experienced anything like that before. But, but yeah, it's, it's a good video, but we're, we're freezing. I'm sure we could have recreated it in a studio in Rochdale somewhere and got some. <laughs> Yeah. But it wouldn't have been as
1: authentic. On a green screen. It'd been far more warm, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah. It's their Badger style.
1: There we go, then that's the end of the first half of my chat with Graham Lambert of the Inspiral Carpets about all things music, all things cricket. If you're enjoying it so far, then turn me off now. Stop me wittering on, and you can turn on part two and enjoy the second half of the chat, Inspiral Carpets Guitarist.